Thank you. Welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is May 20th, 2023. My name is Tanya G, and I'm a compulsive overeater from Louisiana. I will be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts are Maria F. from Ireland and Sue L. from PA. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. The chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the Q&A session. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G., will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the questions and answer session, which follows, will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to our seventh tradition. This money goes towards the co cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we will also send contributions to our intergroup and WSO. We will post a link to the previous week's recordings. These are available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat box. I will turn it, I will now turn it over over the meeting to Harlan G. Thank you very much, Tanya. Thank you. And I want to thank all of you for being here. What a glorious morning it is here. I hope it's as glorious wherever it is you are, whether you're listening on podcasts or whether you're listening to us live here. Uh, but uh, I'm going to try to, actually, I'm going to sh shut down the participants because there's so much flashing there. Okay. Um, we are going to talk about the end of step 11. We're going to pick this up on page 87 at the very bottom where it says, as we go through the day. But before we do that, before we pick that up, we're gonna talk a little bit more about step 11. We're gonna talk a little bit more about prayer. We're gonna talk about some of the things that we've talked about last week. And last week we talked about prayer and meditation. And when they are talking about meditation in the big book, you have to remember that the type of meditation that many of us are familiar with here at this point in life is very different than anything they were familiar with. What they think of as meditation is they are thinking about just silence. They're thinking about just being quiet, just being still. And Ann Smith would stand at the doorway of their home on Ardmore Street in Akron, Ohio. And she would see Bill and Bob, and they were very, um, very anxious to get outside. They were very anxious to go to the hospital and look for drunks to work with. And she'd stand at the door almost like a traffic cop, and she would hold her hand out and say, have you boys done your quiet time yet? And they would sit back down, and they would be still. And one of Ann Smith's favorite Bible verses was, now we all know what her favorite Bible verse was sorry about the voice this morning. Her favorite Bible verse was definitely faith without works is dead. But one of her favorite Bible verses was be still for I am God. And one of the things that is most difficult for us to do as people, and I don't care how evolved your recovery gets, you will never rise above the level of human being. And as a human being, we are privy to catastrophizing, limiting the possibilities, limiting God. You know, I do that a lot. I sometimes need to hear myself say to my sponsees and to other people, maybe we need a bigger God. And so when I go through step 11 and I do it by my by myself here in, in the morning, or I've done it with another person, which is glorious. I love doing that. But the bottom line is no matter whether I'm doing it with another person or I'm doing it by myself, I often hear myself saying, but I've got all these problems. I've got all these concerns. I've got all these fears. And what I had to learn in program was Stop telling God how big your problems are and start telling your problems how big your God is. 
And so what's very important for me to remember is God is beyond my imagination. God is beyond my comprehension that if he was small enough for me to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to solve my problem. So I have to take that in and I need to talk about that and I need to hear it all the time because I have a built-in forgetter. And my built-in forgetter says, oh, but you don't understand. I want this and I want that and I want this and that. Oh, no, 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 no. God says, please, you just keep doing your work. I'll put things in your life that I want you to have. I won't take anything away from you that's necessary. And I don't trust that all the time, but I have to work at it because like everyone, I'm a work in progress. So step 11 every single day is practicing. In 10, we continue. In 11, we improve. And in 12, we're going to practice. And we're going to be talking about step 12 this morning. We're going to begin a several week long discussion on step 12 this morning. But right now, let's focus on step 11. And what step 11 centers me for is to not go into the day to try to suck out of the world what I think it should yield up to me, quid pro quo. You know what quid pro quo is? It's a legal term. It's a Latin term. And quid pro quo means you do this and I'll do that. Well, quid pro quo doesn't work for me in the world. I have to do my work. And boy, I've got a lot of work to do. Oh, my Lord in heaven, do I have a lot of work to do. And it sometimes seems to me that the deeper into recovery I get, the more things that are revealed to me that I need to work my butt off on. So the more I get into it, it's not that I can be complacent. It's not that I can be, uh, you know, just taking it easy. It says in the big book, resting on our laurels. I can't do that. What I have to do is I have to take a continued assault against the ravages of my defects of character, fear, anger, dishonesty, selfishness, and self-seeking. Those defects of character have ravaged my life and they will continue to ravage my life in different ways until such time as I'm dead. And they will never stop. One of the fallacies about my life is that I will be rid of my character defects. No matter what happens in my life, my ego resurrects itself gorgeously, gorgeously. You know, if every organ tissue in my body resurrected itself as beautifully as the ego, I'd live to be 25,000 years old. You know, I've got a birthday coming up on Wednesday. So does Nancy. And so does uh, Gary Berghoff and B Bob Dylan and Priscilla Presley and Jane Byrne. Most of you don't know who Jane Byrne was. She was the first female mayor of Chicago. And that's for another story. But Jane Byrne, he, her birthday was May 24th, too. But anyway, getting back to the real world here. Okay. So prayer and meditation. Prayer means I'm talking. Meditation means I'm being quiet. I'm so given to being verbose. I'm so given to talking. Not so much when it comes to being still. So that's what I need to work on. And what I need to remember is I cannot sit here and pray for my own selfish ends. I have to pray for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out. Okay, let's go to the bottom of 87. If you're following along at home, I used to watch Bozo Circus when I was a kid, Channel 9, WGN, and we'd watch Bozo Circus at lunch. And we'd co I'd come home for lunch and watch Bozo. And uh, they would always have a ki two kids, a boy and a girl, playing the grand prize game. But there were also a boy and a girl at home 
playing with, you know, vicariously, obviously, they were playing the grand prize game along with the kids that were chosen. So if you're playing here, you're playing at home, let's go to the bottom of 87. I'm full of Narishkeit today. I don't know why, but I'm full of Narishkeit. Okay. All the way at the bottom, it says, as we go through the day, we pause when agitated. Let's expand on that for just a minute. What does that mean to pause? Oh, there's fancy acronyms about pause and it's uh, whatever it is. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I don't want to distract us. What that means is step 10. What do we do when we're agitated? We do step 10. But Bill didn't want to write in such a way that was extremely repetitive. You know, you know, you know, you know, you know. He doesn't want to use the same words over and over again. So he just got done explaining to us about step 10. Now he's saying we pause when agitated or doubtful. What does doubtful indicate? It indicates fear. So when I have fear, I do step 10, right? And ask for the right thought or action. Every time we see that word ask, what are we doing? We're praying. We're praying, right? We're praying. So what are we praying for? God, guide me to the right thought or action. And invariably, invariably, what is that right thought or action? What does step 10 tell me to do? Specifically, it says, we turn our thoughts to someone we can help. When it says we ask for the right thought or action, that doesn't mean I obsess, I want a Maserati. Oh, if I had a Maserati, I'd have the fastest car. Oh, everybody would be, oh, they would be so jealous of me. I would have a Maserati and it would be so great. Well, if God wanted me to have a Maserati, I wouldn't be driving a freaking Honda. But my Honda gets me to where I want to go and it gets me back. It gets me from A to B and back to B to A. It does just great. It does just great. So, you know, we constantly, next sentence here, we constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show. Humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will be done. What's the 10 step prayer? I just asked us, he just asked, I didn't, he just asked us, see my ego? I just said, I just asked us. Bill Wilson in the book says, do another step 10. What is the 10 step prayer? The 10 step prayer is how can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. Because I've got all, I've got a whole list in my head of how I want this and I want that. No, 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 no. What God is indicating to me is, why don't you be quiet with that? Why don't you be quiet with that? Remember I told you the story about how I wanted a Ernie Banks baseball card and I kept nagging my mother for more and more nickels because a packet of baseball cards was five cents. And I wanted, I was going to, damn it, I was going to keep buying baseball cards until I got an Ernie Banks. Because I thought if I had an Ernie Banks card that my life would be just complete. It would then I would rise above the level of the of the din of life because I had an Ernie Banks card and my mother turned to me and said to me very angrily, "Azoi gatus my son, azoi gatus my son means in Yiddish it means it's always something with you, my son." And she was right, she was right. So I have to quiet that down. And it's sometimes easier than other times to quiet down that shouting in my soul that tells me what I must have or how things must go. No, 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 no. Let's continue. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. Excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions are indicative of high degree of emotion. 
Now, remember when we started the doctor's opinion way back when, and we talked about the fact that if you are a compulsive overeater, that food was not the problem. We're going to tie in the doctor's opinion to this, and we're going to tie it in for step 12. So we're going to be going back to the doctor's opinion a couple of times this morning. But in the doctor's opinion, he tells me in the paragraph that begins, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. In that paragraph, what Dr. Silkworth is telling me in different words is that food was never the problem that food was the solution to the problem. And if food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem is the discomfort from the buildup of normal everyday human emotion. And what happens when I get full of fear, excitement, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions which bring about guilt and shame and fear and remorse. What, excuse me, what happens to me in those moments is the emotions run very high. And the higher my emotions run, the more likely I am to say, screw it and eat because food becomes a step up from the way I feel when I'm feeling these feelings, doesn't it? And eating becomes preferable. So when he's talking about these things of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions, what he is reminding us of is if we go to God and we work these steps, we will not suffer from this high emotional state that produces most of our eating, I don't have to catastrophize. Every time I put my hands on something, it seems to me my hands make it worse. I say stupid things. I do stupid things. Then I have to go back and regret it. Then I have to beat myself up for saying the stupid things. Then I have to you know, ask forgiveness for saying and doing stupid things. But you know what? If I just leave it to God, everything seems to work out infinitely better. And no matter how many times I have successfully left it to God, no matter how many times my life has devolved with my will and improved because of his will, I still am more tempted to try to think my way out of situations rather than let God have it by staying out of it and doing the next right thing. They have a name for people that do that. They're called human beings. But the problem for me isn't that I'm a human being. That's good. That's okay. I'm a special kind of human being. I'm a compulsive overeater. And as a compulsive overeater, food is my solution to the problem. And if food is my solution to the problem, when those emotions get too tense, eating again will be a step up from where I feel. And when you see people and you listen to people who are coming out of relapse, more often than not, this is the unsaid part of the story. They don't say this because most of us are not aware of it. So being aware of it isn't going to cure it. It isn't going to change it. I have to take action. Action. Let's continue. We do not tire so. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. My morning meditation includes pages 60 to 63 every day of my life. And what does it tell me in 60 to 63? That I am like the actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery. And the more I hear myself say this, the more true I believe this. This is my opinion, that the disease of compulsive overeating, alcoholism, drug addiction, the disease is the most exhausting way to live in the world. 
It's exhausting and it wears me out because I have to keep thinking and I have to keep ruminating and, oh my God, I don't have that kind of energy. And I'm like a fish. You know, when you go fishing and you bring, you catch a fish and you bring it in, not a pan fish, not a little perch or, you know, a, a blue bluegill or crappie or whatever it is. But when you catch big fish, you have to play them out until you can't just bring them to the boat. So I'm like that fish that the disease has caught. It wears me out. And when I get into the boat, I'm screwed because what's on that boat? Chips Ahoy and Reese's peanut butter cups and, uh, you know, whatever, all manner of binge foods because I'm exhausted. I'm bereft of any type of fight left in me. And I have nothing left to fight with at that moment. And at that point, pizza owns my butt. So I see a lot of heads going up and down, but we have to keep taking action. Okay, let's do it. Now, this is one of the most important sentences in the world. There are few, if any, sentences more important than this sentence. And this is a guarantee that God is giving you and me. It works. It really does. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, it works. God, does it work better than I ever could have imagined or planned. Yes, I don't rise above the, yes, I don't. No, I don't rise above the level of human being. Yeah, there's times when I think, oh man, this sucks or I'm hurting here. Okay, but it works. It really does. You have to give God a chance. It works. It really does means that if you're struggling, you have to know that by running to, by walking to God, he will run to you. Take the next indicated action. Test God. See where you can find him lacking. See where you can find him inadequate. See where you can find him weak. I bet you can't do it. It works. It really does. Now, that sentence is one of the greatest promises that has ever been created. It works, it really does. Let's move on. But that sentence, it works, it really does, is the key sentence for me of life. It's something I have to remember. It's something I have to keep in mind because without it, I will turn to self. And the more I turn to self, the closer I get to a pizza, and the more I turn to God, the further away from pizza I live, and I'm happy in my release. See, there's a lot of people on the line today that are white-knuckling it. That means that they've taken their dieting skills from the paying ways and they're using their unaided willpower to hang on for another day. And my God, I'm not going to eat those. And we know that the fuse is lit because eventually we're going to eat if we proceed on unaided willpower. If we had enough willpower, we wouldn't be here now, would we? And on page seven of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson says, where alcohol is concerned, the will is amazingly weakened, although it remains strong in other areas. Bill was a smart man. Bill was a very, very hardworking man. He knew a lot of things about the stock market and investments and things like that. He was a smart, good man. But he, in, in, in front of whiskey, he, in front of beer, could not resist the urge to consume them because they did something for him that nothing else could do. They made him feel that effect. In other words, they changed his perception of reality temporarily. Let's continue. We alcoholics are undisciplined. 
There's the understatement of the year. We alcoholics are undisciplined. Well, when you, I could go on a three hour, you know, uh, discussion of that. I am undisciplined. I have to have more discipline in my life. It says here, so we let God discipline us in the simple way we have just outlined. I don't miss days doing my steps. I don't. No matter what is going on in my life, I do the work. Am I a perfect person? No. Do I do the steps perfectly? No. But I do them and I do the best I can. The only step I have to work perfectly is paso prima. Paso prima is step number one. I learned that from Barbara over in Italy. Paso prima, step one. So the only step I have to work perfectly is step one. The rest of it, I'm a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. Okay, so we let God discipline us, but that is not all. There is action and more action. You know, I found this out that when I first came into Overeaters Anonymous and for the first years that I was here, I treated it like a diet club. All I did was I brought my skills from the, the paying way. I brought my skills of willpower and dieting with groups of work. I brought them into OA. And to be honest with you, I didn't really want to be here. I just wanted to die. I never really understood how sweet life could be. And I learn all the time that it is better than I ever could have imagined. And then what happened is one day out of desperation, the gift of desperation, I got truly abstinent. And no, I had seven years of abstinence before this relapse, but 24 years ago on December the 29th, 1998, I got abstinent. And on that date, I was released from a merciless obsession to consume food that was killing me. And I have been happy about it ever since. But one of the things that I learned is for the first few years, it was about eat, don't eat, go to meetings, eat, don't eat, call your sponsor, eat, don't eat, call your, go to meetings, eat, don't eat, call your sponsor. And that was how I lived for several years. I don't want to say how many years because I don't want to get anybody upset. And then one day I started noticing that my codependency was lessening, that I had the ability to say no, that I had the ability to speak my mind, that I had the ability to be the person God had intended. And that's a lot to learn. And boy, oh boy, I still make mistakes. Boy, oh boy, I wish I was perfect. I'm not. And there's areas of my life I need a lot of work in. Trust me on that one. But I am better than I was. And I had a friend of mine, and he was the reason I moved to Oregon. And he he's passed away now. And he was a good, he was a good guy. He he continues to help me out because I have his residual accounts and I've been doing extremely well on them. Let me just say that. Um, but that aside, his mother and sister, uh, I went to meetings with them many years ago. His sister was at the very first meeting I was ever at on February 2nd, 1979. I was 24 years old. And his mother gave me a gift. And it was a plaque. And that plaque was on my desk, in my office, and in my home. And what it says simply is, I may not be what I used to be. I may not be what I could be. But thank God, I, well, I may not be what I could be. I may not be what I, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. Thank God I'm not what I used to be. Because at my darkest moments today, I am infinitely better than the Harlan of years and years ago. I am more likely to do the right thing than I was years ago. I am more likely to forgive and forget, and I am more likely to give you an honest answer than I was years ago, and I am more likely to pause and not fly off the handle than I was years ago. That's just the tip of the iceberg. 
and that there are areas of my life. I'll give you one very quickly. I love my mother. And I couldn't say that years ago. I blamed her for everything. My mother had her shortcomings. My mother was not the mother I wanted. I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents, young and American and wealthy. They danced in the living room and they they kissed each other every night and all that. That's what I wanted. That's what I thought I was missing out on. And I got something real different. I got Max and Virginia Grabowski. Boy, oh boy, talk about a 180 degree turnaround from Rob and Laura Petrie. That's what I got. My dad spoke very little English. He spoke enough just to get by. And I'll let you in on a secret. He resented having to speak English some of the time. He would just turn to me and he would be so frustrated because he wanted to to have the conversation with you, but the English was just, it was just too hard for him. It was just too hard. But anyway, getting back to my mom, I blamed her for everything. My mom had her problems. There's no doubt, no doubt. But my mom loved me. And as her life fades in the rear view mirror, because she's been gone since 1976, my mother has been gone for a long time. What is it? 47 years, something like that. My mother is dead in July. She died July 25th, 1976. It's a long time. Don't make me do math. So, but I see her now as a mom who loved her son. I couldn't see that years ago. I see my mother as a woman who in the face of a not so good marriage to my dad. I see her in the face of all of her diabetes and kidney failure and all her other things. My mother did the best she could with what she had. And when they called my mother from the school that I was sick or I was injured, my mom didn't drive a car. My mom was at that school. My mom did whatever it took to make sure that I was as taken care of as she could take care of me. And I not only forgive her, but I beg her to forgive me. And I will write her a letter on Wednesday. And I will again express my love for her. And I will again ask her to please forgive me for being a jerk of a son while she was alive. It was my own unwe. It was my own unhappiness. It was my own failures that caused me to treat her less than respectfully and lovingly, which is what she deserved as my mother. But without program, with just a diet, with just with if if all this was was a diet, there's no way I could have gotten in touch with that. There's no way. So I thank God every day that he reveals himself to me slowly because I couldn't handle everything at once. And he reveals himself to me efficiently so that I eventually get the message. Not the sharpest, I'm not the sharpest shovel in the shed, trust me. I'm not, I'm not the sharpest pencil in the pencil box, but eventually I do get it. This is my process. I'm never the first one to pick stuff up. When something new is presented, I'm looking around going, what, who, what, what the heck? What are you talking about? And then eventually I get it. But I, I do know that when I get it, I got it. I got it. Sometimes it just takes a little longer than I would like it to. Okay, now we're going to talk about something here because it says here, but this is not all. There is action and more action. Faith without works is dead. The next chapter is entirely devoted to step 12. Now, before we tackle anything on page 89, and there's a huge promise on page 89, we'll try to get to it today. That's as good as it works, it really does. I mean, this is a knockout promise here, guys. But I want you to do me a favor. If you have a book in front of you, if you don't, you can just listen. And I would like you to please go to the very first page of the doctor's opinion. And if you're in the fourth edition, like I am, that's on page XXV. 
XXV is 25 in Roman numerals. And if you could go back to XXV of the doctor's opinion, I'd like to call your attention to the paragraph that begins with, in the course of his third treatment. And I'll give you a second to get to that page. What I'd like to talk to you about while you're getting to that page is we are going to be talking about sponsorship for the next several weeks. We're not going to cover this in a week. We're probably going to cover this over the course of several weeks because that's what it deserves and the chapter is long. So we're going to be talking about sponsorship. And the word sponsor does not ever appear in the big book. The word sponsor changed. It metamorphosized in the history of AA because you have to remember something. The stigma of alcoholism in the 1930s was very, very different than the stigma of it today. In the 1930s, there was no such thing as HIPAA. And in the 1930s, the laws that protect people, we call them protected classes, was not in place. So if I was the owner of Grabowski and Sons Lumber Company, I could fire you because you. Uh, were an alcoholic. I could fire you because you didn't pay your electric bill, whatever. I could fire you no problem. Okay. So the stigma of alcoholism was extremely different in those days than it is today. And when they used the word sponsor, this is how they used it. Now you have to remember something. The Tuesday night Oxford group meeting at Bill Wilson's house was really only for drunks, but any Oxford group member could attend. But since the stigma, because in 1937, 35 and 36, things were good. They kept asking Bill, get us some Wall Street people. Stop concentrating on these darn drunks. We don't want the drunks in our midst. We want Wall Street people. Well, guys, what did the Wall Street people have that the drunks did not have? They had money. Not all of them because it was the Depression, but the drunks were busted out like rats. They had nothing. And they didn't want the drunks in their midst. They'd say, we're very glad that you're bringing these people in, but your friend here just puked on my shoe and it smells. They didn't want the drunks in their midst. And in 1937, the summer of 37 in August, Bill pulled the groups out of the Oxford group and they met at his house in Brooklyn, 182 Clinton Street. And at 182 Clinton Street, they had their meetings of the Oxford group, not of AA. I want to be very clear that the meetings were Oxford group meetings, not Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. But the ones that were attended there were mostly alcoholics because the Oxford group did not support Bill Wilson in his endeavor and he split off. Dr. Bob didn't split off from them until 39. Hence, some of the tension between Akron and New York. We'll go into that another time. But the word sponsor meant, here's a guy showing up, let's just call him uh, Fred. Fred shows up at the meeting and nobody knows Fred. Well, Fred, how did you hear about our meeting? Well, does any, do, do any of you know Fred? In other words, what they're looking for is that, that nexus, that, that, that joining together of Fred and the group. Well, does anybody know Fred? So if somebody would say, oh, yeah, I drank with Fred. He's a lush. He got in trouble with the police. He did. That was what they referred to as a sponsor because you are you are showing them that Fred is safe. He's not a member of the press. He wasn't sent there by your boss. He wasn't sent there by a friend of your wife or whatever that might be. He was there as a legitimate drunk. Now, in 1939, Clarence Snyder, who is the father of modern day sponsorship, see, it takes a village, takes a village. Bill and Bob didn't do this. Clarence did. He, after April 10th, he got his hands on the book when it was in multi-lith copy. Multi-lith is mimeograph. I can still remember being in grammar school and the teachers would pass out the mimeograph test and the mimeograph sheets would smell just like Elmer's glue. 
I don't know what was in that mimeograph ink, but it smelled just exactly like Elmer's glue. Remember Elmer's, the white Elmer's glue, and you'd get it on your fingers and your fingerprint would kind of be in there. It was kind of cool to peel it off. We used to have a lot of fun with Elmer's glue. And then one day, Richard Superfine squirted some Elmer's glue on Michelle Carlin's hair. And I can still hear the screaming. And his mom and dad both had to come to school for that one. Luckily, that wasn't me that did that. But I, I remember it as if it was five minutes ago. And that occurred in about 1965, 64, something like that. And I can still remember it. He got the glue in her hair. And oh, my God. Well, anyway. All right. XXV. In the course of his third treatment, he, Bill Wilson, acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. What is he referring to here, guys? He's referring to what we know today as sponsorship. And without sponsorship, you are not working a 12-step program. You are working an 11-step program. And an 11-step program is a half measure. And a half measure avails us what? Nothing. Nothing. So Kim G., my friend in New Jersey, says the best. If you're afraid to sponsor, you better be afraid not to sponsor. Because without sponsorship, you're not working a program. Now, are you? This becomes the basis. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. The basis of it, the basis is it of what? Of passing what we've learned from one person to another person. Clancy Immeslin says this beautifully. He should rest in peace. He says, we do not learn this program by absorbing spiritual information. We learn this program by transmitting spiritual information. And when we transmit that spiritual information is when we learn it. Some of you will call me up or you'll send me a text message. What page is this on or what page is that on? And some of you are very effusive in your praise and I know this or I know that. You know how I learned that? by answering the same question 3,000 times. That's how I learned my way around this book. I didn't learn my way around it by studying the book. I learned my way around this by teaching the book. That was the key for me. These men, uh, these men this man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. Now let's go to the very next page, the very next page. And it says here, oh, wait, not, not the next page. Sorry about that. I'm going to XXVIII, X two pages down. I'm in the doctor's opinion in the fourth edition. I have a fourth, I don't have a third. XXVIII, it says here, frothy emotional appeal. That's the paragraph I'm gonna be reading from. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. How do you get depth and weight into your message? By living the disease and living the recovery. And it's called the language of the heart. We are the only ones who speak it, and we are the only ones who can understand the language of the heart. The language of the heart comes from the soul, and it is devoid of bullshit. It is devoid of lies. It is pure truth, pure truth, because we have lived the hell of the disease. And we have tasted the fruit of the recovery. There is no more earthly accoutrements. There are no more lies. This is pure soul to soul. My soul talking to your soul. Now let's go to page 14. Now on page 14 in Bill's story, 
I am going to tell you what I call this paragraph. You can call it anything you want. I call this Ebby's legacy. This is Ebby's legacy. It's at the very bottom of the page. And this paragraph teaches me what I need to know about working with others and sponsoring, that it is the only way to expand and enlarge my spiritual life. Let's take a look at what the paragraph says and let's apply it to our own life. My friend, Ebby, had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Let's stop right there. The necessity. What does necessity mean? Something that is necessary above all else. To demonstrate these principles means to live the steps. Let's continue. Particularly was it imperative. Imperative means important beyond all else. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. I like making calls to certain you know, newcomers or whatever that may be or whatever, but it is vital that I sponsor. There is no substitute for sponsorship. Faith without works was dead, he said. And how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. What is he telling you here? You have to work with other people because this is the only way to stay ahead of this disease. The disease gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse every day, whether you are eating or not. Whether I'm eating or not, a man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He made up his mind to stay bone dry until he was successful in business and did not touch another drop for 25 years. After success in business, he pulled out his bottle and, and carpet slippers, and he was dead within four years. Did 25 years of sobriety save the man of 30 from dying of alcoholism? No. Does 24 years of abstinence going to save me from compulsive overeating? No. I have this disease, but here's my choice. I can die with the disease or I can die from the disease. Dying from the disease is an ugly, horrible death. My mother died of this disease. She was on kidney dialysis. She had her leg amputated from diabetes. They were gonna have to take the other leg. My mother had gangrene in her other leg at the time that she died. My mother's circulation was so horrible that she had profuse swelling in her lower legs. I have a two. Thanks, mom. No, I'm kidding. But I have a two. But the, I don't, but I sleep on what's called a wedge. So my feet are always elevated. And in the morning, it's just glorious. And the walking really helps me too. But we can die from the ravages of this disease and die a horrible, horrible death. Now, you might say death is death. But I would offer you this disease will rob you of what little life you have left. And if we die with the disease, we can have a very full life until we go. Now, there are many, many other areas of this book I could point to, but I'm not going to. There's just one other thing I want to take you to. Would you please, if you can, go with me to page 570. 570 is not usually a page most of you have ever read, but I'd like you to go back into Appendix 3 on page 570. And I want to expand on us another virtue of sponsorship, okay? It says at the top of the page, Dr. W.W. W. Bauer, I'm on page 574th edition, Dr. W.W. W. Bauer, broadcasting under the auspices of the American Medical Association in 1946 over the NBC network. That would be radio, not TV. 
TV wasn't invented yet or wasn't mainstream yet. It was invented, but forget it. And he said in part, Alcoholics Anonymous are no crusaders, not a temperance society. They know that they must never drink. They help others with similar problems. In this atmosphere, the alcoholic often overcomes his excessive concentration upon himself. Learning to depend upon a higher power and absorb himself in the work with other alcoholics, he remains sober day by day. The days add up to week into weeks, the weeks into months and years. If I'm going to recover, I am going to have to get out of myself. That is a fact, and it is an inescapable fact. And it is a fact as easily discernible as the sun is hot, Lake Michigan is wet, and the Mississippi River goes south. Okay? These are facts that if I'm going to recover from this disease, I have to do all the things prescribed, but I must show others. I must teach others. Clancy Immislin often said, when one alcoholic talks to a second alcoholic so that the second alcoholic's feelings of difference and fear dissipate to the point where the second alcoholic will start to take action after action after action that he does not yet believe in, that is the point where recovery is taking place. Very important. Now, we don't have a lot of time left but what I want to do is I'm going to cover the first paragraph on page 89, and I'm going to cover it today. And I'm going to start with the very same paragraph next week. So I need you to indulge me in that thing, in that folly. Okay. It says here on page 89, working with others, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. What more do you need? Don't be afraid of not being a perfect sponsor. None of us are perfect sponsors. None of us are perfect people. We are not in the results business, guys. You just show them how you work the steps, guide them through the book. The book does most of the work, but nothing will ensure immunity from drinking so, uh, as intense, so much as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. What message? The message of the book. Don't carry them my message. Don't carry them your message. Carry them the message of the book. You know, I hear this all the time. People say, I need a born-again Christian sponsor who's left-handed and limps. Now, what kind of crazy narishkeit is that? If Whatever religion you are, whatever color you are, race, creed, color, whatever you, whatever, you, you just need a sponsor to take you through the book. They don't have to match all. You're setting God up for an impossible thing. I need a sponsor who writes with his left hand. It has 20-20 vision. What are you doing? All you need is someone that you can talk to every day that, <clears throat> excuse me, that can bring you through the steps. That's what we need. Come on, guys. If if you really want to recover, Mickey Mouse could sponsor you. And if you don't want to recover, Bill Wilson could sponsor you and you're going to drink or you're going to eat. It's not about the sponsor in 99% of the cases. If the person is available and they speak and understand the language of the heart, there shouldn't be a problem. Somebody called me, not yesterday, yesterday was Friday, Thursday. Somebody called me Thursday. I have to have a born again and he has to be this and he has to be married and he has to have at least three kids. And I'm, I said to this person, are you crazy? I said, what, what kind of madness is possessing you? I said, this is madness. 
you need a sponsor that understands the big book that can show you how to recover. That's what we need. Let's continue. You can help where no, when no one else can. You can help when no one else can. Next week, we're going to draw some other things from the big book that talk about the hell of your life can save someone else. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. I remember having a conversation with a man who lives in Texas. And he comes to our meetings in Scottsdale all the time. He's a regular at our meetings. And I remember the initial call that he made to me, he got my number from somebody. And we're talking. And he said to me how much he weighed. And I related to him about how I couldn't get in and out of a car. And I, I was emasculated by this disease. And I, I couldn't walk and I couldn't stand. And I was an object of ridicule. And he was crying on the other end of the phone. I heard him sobbing like a baby on the other end of the phone. And the reason that he was sobbing is because at that moment, for the first time in his adult life, he felt less alone than he had ever felt because this disease isolated him and he felt so different from everyone else that he had lost hope. Now, I believe very strongly that these ideas, these pains, these things, these ideas that I had about food were secret and unique unto me. And the language of the heart, when my ego was lowered just a little bit, my neurosis was lowered just a little bit, all of a sudden when fresh air came in, it comforted me. It was a Thursday night, miserable, miserable night outside. And at Thursday night at Swedish Covenant Hospital in Chicago, we had meetings all the time. And this was the Thursday night speaker meeting. And I was potchkeying around. Potchkeying just means playing, drawing, you know, scribbling. And the speaker that night was a woman who became my first sponsor. And she was the speaker that night. And her birthday is just a few days after mine. We call each other on our birthdays every year. And she was married and she had two little kids who have kids of their own now. And she was, she, she drove a brand new Cadillac, always drove a Cadillac. She drove a Cadillac Coupe de Ville, as I recall. And then she got an Eldorado. Oh man, that was a nice car. And she was the speaker. I had never paid much attention to her before, although she was very nice to me, but I wasn't having it because I was not in a good place. And she told her story. Now, what did I have in common with this woman? Absolutely nothing. She was married. She had two kids. She used to wear pearls and she used to wear jewelry and her hair and her this matched and everything was just as exactly the way it's supposed to be. I guess. I don't know. I'm assuming it was the way it was supposed to be. I don't know. And she told my story from the front of the room. How the hell she knew things about me that she knew I couldn't begin to tell you. But she knew things about me that I believed were buried so deep inside me that no one on planet Earth could have known them. And she opened me up to a possibility that I still cling to today. That if I am willing, that I am not as unique as my ego would have me think I am. And that even though maybe you don't look like me, maybe you don't come from Devon Avenue, maybe you didn't go to math or high school, but you and I are the same person. You might be bulimic. You might be anorexic. You might never have weighed over 200 pounds in your entire life. But I am you and you are me. We are each other. So if you're thinking that you're just getting started, stick around. Don't quit five minutes before the miracle. 
There's a lot of miracles here, miracles which most people could never have imagined. But if I can still be alive and standing on my feet and my bills are paid and I made money this week and I'm functioning and I have to think there's hope for you. And there are miracles with your name on it headed for planet Earth. And when they come, you will be challenged to doubt God. Do the work. Now, before we go, before we turn it back over to whoever we're turning it over to, and I don't remember who, I think it's Sue, but don't quote me. I want to just remind you that um, uh, we will be meeting next week. Oh, yes, we will. And I just want to remind you before we go to the questions and answers, please, let's not waste time on food questions. For the love of God, no math questions. Don't ask me how many years between 1976 and now is because I don't know. I have to use my calculator. Um, and if you asked the question last week, would you please be courteous? Step back and let people who did not ask a question last week come forward. And when there's a lull, even if you did ask a question last week, now it's your turn to go and ask a question. So I'm going to turn it over to Maria. And that way I'm safe because if I turn it over to Maria, she'll know or Sue and we'll go from there. So to Tanya, to Harlan and then. Tanya. Yeah. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> all right. Sorry, Tanya. You're all right. I forgot I'm about sorry. it. Okay. No worries. All right, Tanya, take it away, kiddo. Thank you, Harlan, for cracking open the big book. It was awesome. Um, and so we will now turn the meeting over 